so much for uh, giving us, allowing us to have just the freedom to be able to worship you like this, to be able to come into your presence. We pray, God, that as we now jump into your word, that it will speak to us. Your Holy Spirit will illuminate to our hearts, God, what it truly means, what it truly has to say for each one of us. May my words be your words, God, as you teach us, lead us, and guide us, and do it all in your Son's name. Amen. Well, we've been in this series now and in Matthew. We're going through the entire book, and we've been in, this, in the Sermon on the Mount, and what we've been talking a lot about is kingdom living. Okay, it's kind of been our theme for a whole bunch of weeks, and it really is a theme for this whole book. Actually, you know, as you see the slide, really we call this the upside-down kingdom because of how Jesus talks about what the kingdom really, really ought to look like and what it really is. And kingdom living, like we've talked about, refers to living in such a way that shows that God is reigning and ruling in our hearts and in our lives, and that we're actually living out the values of the kingdom of heaven rather than the values of this world. Last week, as we continued on in this great sermon that Jesus gave, one of the greatest most famous sermons of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, we saw how kingdom living goes beyond rule-keeping, okay? Or we saw how it goes beyond just keeping the letter of the law, the Old Testament. We spent a lot of time, if you're just wondering what is this Old Testament law stuff and you weren't here last week, we really spent a, a chunk of time talking about what that is and how practical it is still for us today. And then we, we saw that Jesus really dropped a bomb on his listeners, okay? They were just attentively listening to him, and he started saying some crazy things. He started saying some things that were just really outside of the box, but then he dropped a bomb on them that said, listen, your righteousness or your obedience, remember, he's talking to his disciples, but literally thousands of people are probably eavesdropping on this whole sermon. He says, listen, your righteousness or the way you obey the law needs to exceed that of the religious leaders, which was really an insane thing for him to say. They just must have gone, what? Because these guys, I mean, these guys were the elite. Remember we talked about these guys were the Steph Currys. These guys were the Michael Jordans. These guys were the, what's a non-basketball? Anything. <laughs> these guys were the best at keeping the law. That's what they were all about is actually on the outside keeping the law. But we saw that Jesus actually even called them later on in this book. He calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones because they were such hypocrites. Now this message really is to those to really it's those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. We move beyond simply adhering to the letter of the law or rule keeping, which many of us are really good at. Okay, I'm doing my what I'm supposed to be doing, keeping the rule. So we're supposed to move beyond that in order to please God, to completely allowing him to transform the way that we think and the way we act and everything we do. That's what kingdom living is. And to help us to accomplish this uh, and how to live kingdom living, Jesus gave six examples, okay? He gave six examples or contrasting interpretations of different commands in the law in order to show what kingdom living looked like. Remember we talked about there's 613 laws there were, and then the, the religious leaders has actually added to that to make sure laws that help people to not break the laws, and it was just crazy. And Jesus picks out six. And we looked at one of them last week. Last week we looked at Jesus' interpretation of the law com, uh, concerning murder and how Jesus is not, said it's not just the act of murder that makes one liable to judgment, but simply 
having, bearing a grudge or having anger or resentment towards someone makes a person actually guilty in God's courtroom. It's not just about actions. We saw that it's about the heart. And one of the cool things about what we're hearing and what we're learning about kingdom living is that it's not, is that we saw last week that it's really all about love. It's all about what it means to truly love God and to truly live, live, love others. You see, because the thing about the kingdom of heaven and living kingdom life is that it's uniquely, it impacts, it impacts our relationships with people in a way that is nothing else could. It impacts the way we relate to others, the way we treat others in a powerful way, because ultimately, it displays the most radical love imaginable. The most radical love imaginable, Kingdom Living does. And now he's going to talk about, we're going to start talking about that, and he goes on and moves on, because it's a game changer. Now, in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at five remaining examples, okay? We looked at just one last week, so I'm preaching five sermons in one today, okay? See it, 12, see it, 2 or 30, okay? We'll be done. No, not just kidding. He gives five, of the, five remaining examples of the law that Jesus uses in order to help us to understand what true kingdom living looks like. And Jesus being Jesus, of course, what he's going to do, he chooses out of all those commands... He chooses ones that go right to the heart of where we live, right to the heart, whether we know it or not, really. Somebody might think, oh, these don't relate to me. Check out what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at adultery, divorce, truth-telling, retaliation, loving our enemies. We're going to cover all that this morning, stuff that really hits home to many of us. Let's look at the first, and we're in chapter 5 of Matthew. Let's look at just verses, the first two verses we're going to look at, verses 27 and 28. Look at what he says. He says, you have heard it said, that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we see here that Jesus is addressing the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. Now remember, we talked about this last week, by saying you have heard it said, what he's doing here is he's giving really an interpretation of what the, not what the law really was, but really what the religious leaders, how they had begun to interpret it, how they had begun to help people to understand it in their way. It was not actual interpretation of the Old Testament law. You see, the religious leaders had reduced this commandment to the mere physical act of adultery. Basically, here's what they were saying. Basically, as long as they're not guilty of the act itself, this commandment had nothing to do with them. And they weren't guilty of it at all. They were perfectly innocent. I haven't committed adultery. I'm completely innocent as far as they were concerned. This shows really that the religious leaders were really missing the point. They were missing the point of the law. Obeying the law was never meant to be done in terms of just doing this or don't do that. Isn't that how a lot of people view our faith? Christianity, no, it's just about you have to do this and you can't do that. That's not what it's about. That's not what the law is about. Remember, it's, we talked about it's a law of love. It's always about the heart. Everything that we read in the Bible that tells us what to do and what not to do is about our heart. Because that's what God desires to see transformed. 
Because we saw out of our heart, that's where things come from. We'll see that verse in just a little bit. You see, according to Jesus, merely looking at a woman with lustful intent or with a yearning desire is the same as committing adultery with her. Wow. Because adultery, what, is, what he's saying here is adultery isn't just about committing a physical act. It's about this yearning of the heart. Does that make sense? It goes way deeper. It's those extended looks or it's those thoughts that give our sin nature an opportunity to absolutely corrupt the natural, wonderful gift of sex and sexual attraction. So that's why he's going to the heart. Look, I love how Eugene Peterson, I know I've been doing this every message lately, grabbing one of his verses because he really helps us. Look what Eugene's, uh, how he, in his, the message translation, how he translates these verses. He says, you know what the next command, you know the next command pretty well too. Don't go to bed with another spouse, but don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Wow, that says it well. What Jesus is saying here is that sin is not simply a matter of actions, what we do or what we don't do, but it's something that as our hearts, our heart that leads us into that action. If it's in our heart, even though we don't do that action, it's still there. Because he's concerned more, more, way more than just the outward appearance of things. We saw this last week with murder. When we looked at murder, we saw that. Now, Jesus isn't being legalistic here, or he's not being a prude when it comes to sex. What he's doing with this example is showing us how powerful and alluring and how destructive sin can be, and how susceptible our hearts are to its pull. Because it's easy to say, no, I'm not doing that, but in our heart. And this, remember, this is what Jesus was accusing the, the religious leaders of. Sure, you look great on the outside, but the inside side's not working. It's not working at all. And man, just think about how we are bombarded on a regular basis with images and messages to fulfill our lustful desires. I mean, think about the TV shows. Talking to my son about this the other night, I like to, I work, I work, when I work out, I work, I do different things to work out, but I have an exercise bike at home that I use too, and I like to watch Netflix. It's becoming harder and harder to find a show to get involved in that doesn't just speak specifically to this type of thing. It's getting more and more difficult. Because he's the same thing. He's riding bike too, and he's going, Dad, oh, this is a great show. Then he'll text me, oh, Dad, stop watching it. It's coming up. <laughs> he'll, he'll let me know. Because we've had these conversations as, as men. I have four sons, and we've talked about this whole idea of lust and how the grip of pornography and all this stuff is so powerful, so powerful. I mean, think about the movies we go to and the books. For crying out loud, the books that we read, ladies, some of those novels, yeah, I'm looking at you. Some of these novels. 
<laughs> Some of these novels that, we're, that, we're, that are out there, what they do, and they, what they do, they feed into our sin nature, and our sin nature is something that naturally corrupts the beauty of sex and sexuality that God created, the wonderful gift that he gave us, and our sin nature just wants to corrupt it instantly, and that's what we're facing, and that's why he's talking about this. Sin is very subtle, and the consequences of sin, even for us followers of Jesus, are nothing short of catastrophic. Nothing short of it. We, we make too little of sin in our, in our world, especially in our Christian world a lot of time. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin or something that we, we're getting because we've earned it or we deserve it is what? Death. The wages is death. Death meaning guilt, meaning a feeling of emptiness, of confusion, a disconnectedness with God and with others, that's death. And then there's ultimate death, obviously, is not being with our Lord and Savior for the rest of eternity. It's powerful. Now, understanding the magnitude of sin, the sin of adultery is vital. We need to understand how powerful this is. This could be, like I said, a whole sermon itself. But Jesus goes on. The cool thing is Jesus goes on. He knows this, and he, for, and he helps us to deal. How does it deal with our lustful intent, intent? Look what he says in verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Wow. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, I know many of you are thinking this sounds like a zombie movie. Okay, this, is, this, is not the, this isn't the walking dead here. Okay. Jesus is using hyperbole or he's using exaggeration to illustrate the idea of eliminating at any cost, at any cost, anything that could cause us to be ensnared or to be enslaved to sin. Anything, even good things. Get rid of them. Take them away. Get them out of your sight. Avoid them at all costs. Get help with how you're drawn to that. Anything. Practically, what this means is being discerning concerning, like I talk about, the TV shows that we watch or the movies that we go see or the books that we, we, we read or the things that we allow we, ourselves to see on our computers and on our smartphones, even controlling our lustful gaze. Okay? The problem is with this, though, is that we fool ourselves so often into telling ourselves that, oh, you know what, that's not good, but I'll never do that. I've never followed through with what I'm watching or what I'm thinking about. But the here's the reality of it, though. The reality is that when we allow ourselves to indulge in lustful thoughts, what we're doing is we're actually feeding that sin. We're feeding it and allowing it to impact our heart. In a sense, what we're doing, here's, here's the best way I can think about it. In a sense, when we're seeing something and we're going, oh, I, I would never do that. I know that's not, I shouldn't be watching it, but I would never do that. What we're doing in a sense, we're caressing that sin. We're fondling, in a sense, that sin, getting, cozying up to it, thinking all the time, oh, it's not going to have any impact on me whatsoever. 
You see how crazy that is? You probably heard things like, you know, you get close to the fire, you're going to get burned, all that stuff. That's exactly what it, how it works here with this kind of sin. The sin was lost. It totally works that way. You cannot be involved in looking at it, thinking about it, seeing it, and have it not impact your heart. It's impossible. But we think because I'm not acting it out, oh, obviously it's not having an impact. I haven't cheated on my wife. Obviously it's not a problem watching that kind of stuff. I haven't cheated. I haven't, I'm not, I haven't slept with anybody that I shouldn't. Obviously, pornography or lusting or checking out women, all that, that's not having an impact. What Jesus is saying, no. It is having an impact. It's having an impact right here. It is having an impact. I mean, I mentioned, alluded to this earlier, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Did you hear that, my friend? Did you hear that? Everything you do flows from your heart. So you might think, I'm not doing it out there. You know what? Your heart determines who you are, not your actions. It's your heart that determines. The truth is, it's because our sin is so incredibly harmful, we need to do everything possible to avoid it. And not just the act of doing it. Sometimes we get really legalistic. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. So I'm good. No, it's more than just avoiding the act, but more importantly, the intent of our heart. Do everything possible to guard our heart. The truth is, there's nothing worth having, absolutely nothing worth having that would cause us to miss out on the abundant life a relationship with Jesus offers. Nothing. <laughs> nothing that, and that's the, that, but that's the world, that's our sin nature tells us, ooh, that looks good, it, it, it won't be that bad. Jesus is saying, no, guard your heart because everything you do comes out of that. The point of what is this, that God takes sin seriously. He takes sin so seriously, so seriously that he sent his son to die. He sent his son to destroy it. That's how seriously he takes it, and so should we. All right, now Jesus moves on to the next subject, divorce, okay? Divorce. He talks in verses 31, 32. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. I want to leave now. <laughs> Truth is, this is a very, very complex issue. And actually, we will be coming to it later on in Matthew verses, in chapter 19. Jesus is... is forced to answer this question, and some not forced, but the religious leaders come to him. So we will be dealing with this at more in a deeper extent. Um, but just quickly, let me, let me just hit it a little bit here. According to the Old Testament law, there was only one provision for divorce. One. Deuteronomy 24, chapter 1. Deuteronomy 4, 21 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has, found, he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Okay, we understand what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is actually protecting 
and elevating the honor of women and the sanctity of marriage here. That's what he's actually doing. You see, the definition of the word indecent here, that's the key word, had become very elusive and very fluid for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It originally referred to adultery. But by Jesus' time, it came to mean pretty much almost anything that didn't please a husband. Literally back then, at this time, they had started interpreting this law that literally a wife could be a bad cook, and that would be, give a man grounds for, to give her a certificate of divorce. So you can see how well Jesus is trying to protect not only a woman, but the, the whole sanctity of marriage here. The truth is that what happened is these religious leaders were using this loose interpretation of this verse in Deuteronomy to find easy ways to do what they wanted to do to be able to trade in their wife for a brand new, younger model. Said, oh, I'm not happy, you're not, you just don't look like you used to. Here, I'm not happy with you anymore, get a divorce. And that's what the religious leaders were saying, that's fine, go ahead and do it. To them, it was all legitimate according to the law, so they thought. That's why Jesus comes around and says this. The truth is that if anything attempts to save a marriage was and still is to be made at any cost, at any cost. Now, I know there's a lot, there's a lot we can say about divorce and remarriage here, but like I said, we are going to cover this later in a few months. Suffice to say here, what Jesus is doing, he's not trying to make new rules and new commands on people. He's trying to liberate people and show that marriage is a wonderful thing, okay? He's not condemning people that get a divorce. He's not doing that at all. And we'll talk about that more as time goes on. And if, you, if you're interested in wanting to find out more about kind of where I, I stand with all this stuff, I can refer you to some good articles and different things like that that I believe are very good on this um, whole topic. So let's go on to the next one. Next example Jesus uses to show his demand for a higher standard of obedience to the law, this law of love, of loving others. Here we go in verses 33 to 37. Here's what he says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, he's hitting another law here. What this is, this, the, the Old Testament law stated that if you made a vow or you made a promise, or you, you swore, you said, I'm going to do this, and you swore to the Lord about doing this, you needed to keep that. You had to keep that. Okay? But once again, the religious leaders found a way to circumvent this, to get around making an oath so, oh, because if they wanted to break it, so they could. You see, an oath or a promise sworn to the Lord had to be kept back then. But an oath or a promise, and this is really trippy, an oath or a promise that was made in something else other than the Lord, like by heaven, the example he uses here, I swear by heaven or I swear by Jerusalem or I swear by the altar or my head, what God knows. If you swear by those, that wasn't necessarily as binding, okay? It's like, it's like 
It's like, but if they said, look, okay, here's, here's like, here's like today's soap says, um, I'm, I'm going to keep my word. So I promise, I, I swear to God, you've heard that before. I swear to God. So people are using that as like, you know what? There's no way I'm, I'm, I'm lying here. There's no way I'm not going to come through on this because I'm swearing to God. Okay. But if they said, cross my heart and hope to die and didn't keep their word, they were able to say, hey, I didn't say I swear to God. I only said I crossed my heart and hoped that. See what they were doing? See how nitpicky these religious leaders were in trying to do everything possible to kind of get around the spirit of the law? But just feel like, oh, yeah, we're keeping, we're keeping the letter of the law. What Jesus is saying is you can keep a note, you can make an oath, you can make a promise, but more importantly, just be faithful to keep your word without feeling like I have to sound so convincing. Please believe me, please believe me. No, just be someone that's known for keeping their word because the bottom line is that having to swear by something or somebody betrays our faithfulness to live up to God's standard of truthfulness. Does that make sense? We should be people of our word. That's what he's saying here. Don't worry about all that other junk. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. All right, next one, verses 38 to 42, Jesus talks about retaliation. Now we're really starting to get a little uh, personal here in these next couple. Check this out, what he says in verses 38 to 42. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So this is the law. This is a law that was actually intended to protect people, okay? It, were to, it was a, for protection where crimes wouldn't be overly, would, they would not be overly punished, but they would be justly punished, okay? And to so help people that, that, so they wouldn't retaliate, so they wouldn't try to get back at people all the time for what had happened to them. What was happening, that the religious leaders were taking this law that was meant to ensure that punishment really fit the crime, okay, that it wasn't too much, and they were turning it into a way to justify retaliation. You slandered me. Hey, it says eye for an eye. Guess what I get to do? I get to slander you. See what they were doing? They were taking a law that was to help keep people from getting overly punished, but they were using it as, hey, I get to do back to you whatever, whatever you did to me. I, does that sound like a culture we live in now? Sure does. I'm gonna, you, I was going to say something about tweeting, but I'm not going to. Um, Tweeting back at people, saying stuff, feeling like we have the right to say all this stuff. It's crazy. But what Jesus is saying here, he's saying instead of demanding our rights for retaliation or getting even, even when it seems like we have the right, even when, man, they did something to you, you have a, seem to have a right to get back to them. What he's saying is we're to instead be accommodating as possible for the sake of others. The point is that the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom of heaven, self-interest does not rule. Even, what he's saying here is even our legal rights and legitimate expectations sometimes made to give way to the interests of others. 
Man, the truth, the truth here is that this kind of love is nothing short of revolutionary. It sounds crazy, does You mean I shouldn't have to just get, I don't, shouldn't get back at them? If they're going to sue me, I should just let it go? Well, he's not saying just be a doormat, but he's saying sometimes in order to truly have kingdom, live out the kingdom and to truly love other people is we don't demand our Way. Can you imagine the response from other people as they see us live this principle out? Can you imagine when someone comes along and says something to you and you don't retaliate and the person says, why, what? You hear what they just said to you? Aren't you going to smack, talk smack back at them? You know, no, I'm not. I'm really not. And you could say things like, no, I'm not going to go down, stoop down to their level. No, I'm not going to play their game. Or you could say, you know, no, that's not. That's not the values I live by. I live by a value of loving those who persecute me. <laughs> what? Oh, absolutely blow people away. The cool thing about that, though, chances are people are going to want to know why. What a great opportunity to share the reason why we don't retaliate, why we don't always feel like we have to get back at people. All right, last example. Last example, Jesus shows us the kind of love we're to have for all people, okay? All people, even our enemies. Look what he says in our last section here. Verse 43 says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even, do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, that is a mouthful of truth right there. We saw in this previous section that we aren't to demand our right to retaliate, okay? We don't demand that. But here, this command, with this command, Jesus goes even further. He goes beyond that to actually seeking out the good for the person that's persecuting us. Oh, my gosh, Seek out their good. And not only that, what do we do? We pray for them. Wow. That is huge. By the way, nowhere in the Bible does it say, love these people and hate these people. This is kind of the, once again, the interpretation that the leaders of the religious leaders had come to at the time interpreting this law. We see, we see here that when we love and pray for our enemies, we prove, what it says here, we prove that we are true sons of our Father in heaven. Or in other words, when we are able to truly love and to truly pray from our heart for those that persecute us or for our enemies, we are loving like God loves. You know what phrase fits here? Like father, like son or daughter. When we're loving like God does. You see, love, this is, this is key, you guys. Love for our enemies is a reflection of the character of God himself. 
you get that? It is a reflection of God's character. Notice these verses tell us that God lavishes his blessing on all people, all people, okay, regardless of whether they believe in him or not. Think about it. All people get to enjoy the beauty of our world. All people get to enjoy that. Friendships, we get, everybody gets to enjoy friendships and, and marriage and a, a sense of right and wrong, the ability to love other people, the ability to create beautiful things or create anything. These are gifts. These are blessings from God. And the reality is, and if it's, if it's true what the Bible says, that the world will know us by our love for each other, how much more Will they know and better understand the love of God when we love and when we pray for our enemies and for those that persecute us? Can you imagine? That shows the character of God right there. Not just doing good things on the outside, but truly striving to love and pray for people that the world would say, what the heck are you doing? That just seems so counterintuitive. Why are you doing that? That's going to speak volumes. Yet it's so easy for us to buy into the world's view that we are to hate our enemies or those that vehemently disagree with us. I, I speak with, I have, I have four millennial, not millennial, uh, what is it? Um, yeah, millennial. That's, is that the age group? Yeah, millennials, yeah. I have four millennial sons, Okay. Sorry. I have four millennials, and we get into this conversation, these kind of conversations, we get into a lot of millennial-type conversations. But the one we get into well, recently, we've been getting into this whole idea that of how, I was listening to someone was talking about this generation, but talking about people in general, really our society has become this way, but especially a younger generation, how it's so hard to step into a conversation saying, here, I have my opinion, I have my views, but you know what? I know that you might have something to say to me. Versus saying, I know what I believe, and I know you believe the exact opposite, so I probably don't like you. Which is really where our society, so much of it is, huh? We're seeing a polarization like crazy. You're, 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 you're going to do that? You're going to vote like that? Or you're going to talk like that? Or you're going to support them? I, I, we can't talk. That's crazy. That's just absolutely Crazy. But that's what people, that's what our young people are growing up with, that mindset. They're growing up with the mindset that we have to be, we can be different, we, we, we can be different, but man, if we're different, watch out getting along. Instead of saying we can be different, we can totally get along, we can totally love each other, you believe completely different than I do, let's be friends. It just doesn't, it's just not out there. But we can do that as we live out our, the kingdom living. One commentator I read this week says this. He says, there's nothing as natural, easy, and sinful as only loving those who love us and hating those who don't. Isn't that so true? That's so easy. But he says, also sinful. Remember, it's going to the heart. That's in our heart. Loving our enemies does not come naturally. But this is what we are to strive for in Christ, to live our lives the way God created us to live. And this is what it means in this last verse, to be perfect as my, your heavenly Father is perfect. Some people read that and they go, oh, I'm out. Because we misinterpret what that means. 
to be perfect. To be perfect, perfect here denotes completion or a wholeness or a maturity. It means looking beyond just keeping a set of rules of conduct in order to look good on the outside to having a mind and a character of God himself. Does that make sense? That's what perfect is, is striving to have the character of God, to have it ooze out of my pores, not to be never make a mistake, because God knows that I have a, I have, we have a sin nature. Naturally, we're going to blow it. Naturally, going to make mistakes. But to strive to live God's character, it means looking beyond keeping those rules. What Jesus is saying to the people of his day and what he's saying to us as well is that we should not be satisfied with halfway obedience to the law of love. Don't be. Don't be satisfied with just loving to a certain point. Never be satisfied with how you love people. Always be willing to say, I could love better. I can love more. With God's help, I can love these people beyond what I think I can do. That's what he's saying here. Don't be halfway in your obedience to the law. That's what the religious leaders were doing. You see, the reality is that kingdom living displays itself in kingdom-sized love for others. Tweet that, okay? Kingdom living displays itself in kingdom-sized love for others. And as we've seen, the standard for how this love displays itself is extremely high, yet it's also very doable as we submit ourselves to God's rule and to his reign in our lives. It's possible. Many of us know, you know that verse, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things, all things through him who strengthens me. All things doesn't mean I could just get through this day. Sometimes it does. Sometimes I, I just need him to get me through this day. But sometimes I can do all things means I can love people in ways that I never, ever imagined happening. That's impossible. You do not know what they have done to me or you do not know what's happened here. That's a God thing. That's an amazing thing. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And this is actually one of the purposes of the law that God gave the law in the first place to show us our need for something bigger than ourselves, to show our need for a savior and his life transforming power to love in ways that we never thought possible. I wanna close with a challenge here. Here's a challenge for each of us. I think I even put up there. Yes, there we go. Challenge this week. Show kingdom love, kingdom size love to someone this week. That's your assignment, to show kingdom size love this week if you choose to accept it. Maybe it's by making a conscious decision to not look or to think about someone with lustful intent to be discerning about what you watched, to rethink how you view things, to rethink where you go on your computer, to rethink how men, how you look at women, women, to rethink how you, how you lust. Rethink, you know, rethink that and be really willing to go there this week. Or maybe it's keeping your word, keeping your word even when it's so difficult. I know I said I would, but I would just, if I could just fudge one little bit. No, no matter what the cost, do that. 
or it's going out of your way to show love to your spouse in a way you know that speaks to her heart or his heart that you've never done before or that you know maybe they don't deserve or maybe in a way that is just seems so out of the box for you, but you know that God would want you to do that because it would change or it has the potential to change not just your marriage, but your heart. Or it's striving to love and pray for someone who is actually persecuting or just rubbing you wrong. Loving, praying for them from your heart. And sometimes it takes just going through those motions and asking God to change our heart as we do that. God, give me love for that person. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for their well-being. I'm going to pray for their good. I'm going to pray that they understand who you are. Not necessarily because my flesh wants that, because I know you want that. And you want me to have that kind of heart. And we are going to do these things because we remember that kingdom living displays itself in king-sized kingdom size love for other people. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for how you show us how to love on our own. We just can't. I know I can't. Father, thank you for helping us to see that it's not about keeping rules. It's not about looking good just on the outside. You're concerned about our heart. You desire us to be people that can love in ways that we never anticipated. God, help. I pray for all of us. I pray for my friends in this room, those that are in very difficult situations, maybe that dealing with one of these examples or maybe multiple ones that we've just talked about this morning, that, God, that you would reveal to them your grace, your mercy, and your love and pour out your power to them so that they could, in turn, love in a way that only you can help them to do. I pray that to myself as well. We pray it all in your son's name.